0: Wow. A lot of people here today. The word is on the street. Got a few emails this week of people who have never went to church. No, they, they do. But Hope is talking about sex for the next three weeks. Now let me say a couple things here right on up at, at front. is First of all, is God is not a killjoy. God is not a killjoy. In fact... Uh, God invented sexuality. It is a good thing. It's a very good thing. The Bible encourages you to have great sex. In fact, thank you, sir. The Bible encourages you to have something what I like to call maximum sex. Men, write this down. <laughs> Don't settle for anything less. You want maximum sex. And what's what we're going after in this three-week series? So, woo Some of you are all excited about that. That is great. One of my absolute heroes in the faith is a man by the name of Clive Staples Lewis. Better known as C.S. Lewis. If you had the name Clive <laughs> Staples, you probably <laughs> would go by C.S. also. Lewis and- himself. He was an atheist much of his life. It wasn't until he was 34 years old in 1932 that he gave his life to Jesus Christ. And it was influenced a lot by, does anybody know? Oh, you guys are preaching the choir here. J.R. Tolkien, Lord of the Rings. Gollum, you know what I'm talking about. In his sermon, The Weight of Glory, he says this. He says, if there lurks in modern minds the notion ...that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing. I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what it is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. If you're this morning, you have questions about sexuality, my First reaction to you is, you're not seeking enough. You need to seek pleasure more. Now you're thinking, he has dug himself into a big hole. Is he getting out of this one? We're in a sub-series. We're in a major series right now called The Church on Fire, which is a study of the book of Acts. And that's that one. Watch this now. I made this up this morning. But we have a sub-series called, there you go. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Word art, you know. <laughs> Just double click on it and it's no big deal. <clears throat> the pain of sexual immorality. Why the apostles said to abstain from it. And I don't have, I have it on the slide, but I don't have it in your, in your insert. In Acts chapter 15, we saw a curious thing. In Acts chapter 15, there was this council that formed, and they had to decide a question. Do non-Jewish people have to become Jewish in order to become Christians? Do they have to? And the issue at hand was circumcision. Do they have to become circumcised, if you're male, obviously, in order to be uh, part of the Christian movement? And they had this big brouhaha. In in verse 2, some people taught that unless you are circumcised according to the customs taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. And so this was a huge, huge controversy in the brand new early church. And so they brought the issue down to, the, to the, the bigwigs in Jerusalem and they gave a decision. And the decision was highlighted by James. It's in Acts 15, starting in verse 19. It says, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from, and then four things, food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. And and, and the blood thing could go two different ways. It could possibly be, you know, murdering people, or it could be food that still, or meat that still has blood in it. And here's the rationale, verse 24. Moses has been preached in every city, from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. And so they wrote them this letter. You can see, read about it later in the, in the chapter in verses 28 and 29. They wrote them a letter. And when the, the people of the church, the brand new churches, when they got the letter, it says in the end of that chapter, and I don't have this here, but it just says that they were encouraged. The people read it in verse 31. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. So they said, oh, that, that sounds great. That sounds like a good thing. We'll be happy We'll be happy to do that. Now, we brought this question up before. The question is simply this. I understand the food thing, the idol thing, doesn't work. If you haven't noticed, we don't have any uh, idols in this church. Uh, you know, big hairy thingies when you worship. It's inconsistent to do that. Ask the people who made the golden calf. Inconsistent. God wasn't happy. <coughs> So I understand that. The, the, the food thing, that makes sense. You know, you're going to offend some Jewish people. But sexual immorality? What, why that one? Why not greed or, or, or pride or, or uh, uh, evil speech or all kinds of lying? There's all kinds of things. Why the issue of sexual immorality? Why was that such a big issue? Why is that a big issue for the apostles? Why was it so big that it was one of the four things they said to avoid or abstain from, to stop doing? That's our first question this morning, is why did the apostles include this particular sin to avoid as one of the top four? And what's the big deal anyway? What's the big deal about this? Why is it included in one of the top four? Well, the first thing is, if you, like I said, if you look at that from Acts chapter 15, it says, For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. I'm not going to look at all this, but if you just want to flip real quick, if you have your Bible, flip it to Leviticus, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, third book in the Bible. And uh, I've went to seminary, and I've been a follower of Jesus for over 20 years, and I always still have to do that. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, don't feel bad about that. Leviticus 17 and 18 and... Um, I'm just going to read the headings that are in my Bible. This is a new, new International Version. And it just says, Eating Blood Forbidden. And if you read about it, it talks about all kinds of different food things that a Jewish person would would not do, what they wouldn't eat. And So that's Je- uh, uh, Leviticus chapter 17. then chapter 18 is all about immorality in the sexual area. Unlawful sexual relations. And it talks about every possible thing you could think of Relationally wise, that that they say, don't do that. Don't do that. And and some of them seem just obvious, you know. Don't be with your... I I like... uh, Verse 8. Do not have sexual relations with your father's wife. That would dishonor your father. Yes, it would. (laughs) Verse 7. Do not dishonor your father by having sexual relations with your mother. She is your mother. Do not have relations with her. Okay. A lot of times the Bible is just good common sense. That just ain't going to work in the household. Okay. So part of it is because that was read all over the place. And that's the way Jewish people lived. That's how the sexual immorality piece got included in there. But you still could have picked some other things. The rest of the New Testament is big on this. This word... For sexual immorality is actually the Greek word porneia. Sound familiar? Porn. That's where we get pornography from, which is the writing, the writings of prostitutes. That's where that pornography comes from. It's from the Greek word porneia. Porneia is any kind of sexual sin, any kind of sexual immorality. It doesn't just mean adultery or premarital sex, but it can include lust and all kinds of different things. There's this, this loaded word. Whenever you see it, 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 it and throughout the Bible, it's just a loaded word. It has all these implications as a result. There's a few other times it's used. It's used quite a few times. I think it's, I think it's used uh, 27, 29, 25, 16, something like that. Other times, I think it's 29, actually. Uh, other times in the New Testament. And I just want to list three. What I want to do this morning is we're going to look at four major, five major passages, one of which is going to be kind of a fun one I'm going to include. And we're just going to make some observations as we go along these, and then we're going to come back and summarize our observations. So the first text we're going to take a look at, and why would the apostles include this issue, is Ephesians 5, verse 3. Now, these first three passages are all going to come from the apostle Paul. And so Paul was the guy who had the controversy with people, remember? He's the one who said, what's the big, you know, you talk about being circumcised, and they raised the issue. So when, when Paul is a good guy to, to, to read about on this because he's interpreting what the apostles said, what James and others said at that decision, avoid or abstain from sexual immorality. Paul restates it multiple times, but he explains it even more. Ephesians 5 verse 3 says, and he's talking to the church, very important, He's talking to the church. He's not just talking to anybody in general. He's talking to people who are followers of Jesus. All these passages are, these first three that we're going to look at from the Apostle Paul. He says, but among you, you being the church now, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. Not even a hint of it. Or of any kind of impurity. Or of greed. And here's why. Because... These are improper for God's holy people. You follow that now? Why, why should there not be even a hint of sexual immorality among the church? Why should that be? It says because it's improper for God's holy people. Now, there's two ways to take that. You know, uh, uh, one way is to take it like if you're a little kid and you get caught with your hand in the cookie jar... And they said, what are you doing? You shouldn't want a cookie now because because dinner is soon. You should want that better. And you see the should there is like, no, I want the cookie. (laughs) I would be fine if all we had was cookies for dinner. That would be great. That's one way to take it. The other way to take it is that improperness is inconsistent It's an inconsistency. In other words, to say there shouldn't be a hint of sexual immorality because, and notice what he doesn't say, because good Christians don't do that. He doesn't say that. He says, because that's inconsistent with God's holy people. That's a radical thing. He's not saying... Because that's inconsistent. If you call yourself a Christian, how can you be doing it? It doesn't say that. He says it's inconsistent because you've been made holy. You see the difference? There shouldn't be a hint of sexual immorality among you. Why? Because it's inconsistent. It's it's improper for God's holy people. You're a holy person. Live that way. That's the first one. Just some observations there. We're going to come back and summarize this, so it'll be clear as mud in a little bit. First, Thessalonians. Paul is writing to the church at Thessalonica. We just went there in our study of the book of Acts. Four, verses three through five. A lot of you come down front and you pray. When I, when I pray for you, either during communion or after church, and a constant prayer request. I can almost see it coming. I can see the look in your face. You're going to pray for guidance, and that's a good thing. You're asking, what is God's will for my life? I don't know, I don't know, but I do know one thing, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, and he defines that, a big part of what it means to be sanctified, that that means that you're living a life that's holy, that's a clean life, it's a life that gives you joy and honors God, it's God's will that you live that way, and then he defines it as this, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Wow. That's quite a link. He's linking the whole issue of of uh of, of holiness or being like God or being more and more like Christ with this issue of of se- sexual immorality. Now listen, if you're sitting here this morning and if you've struggled ever with sexual immorality, that'd be everyone. You are just who Paul's writing to. He's writing to people who this makes sense to. You don't avoid something that, you you know, okay, I'll I'll avoid flying right now. Okay, I just did. You don't avoid something that has absolutely no possibility of happening. Yeah, that made sense up here, I mean, yeah. That you should avoid sexual immorality. And then he says this, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that's, and here it is again, holy and honorable. Huh. You mean the Bible isn't just trying to smack me upside the head and say, what's wrong with you? Don't be like that. Don't think those thoughts. Can't believe you're thinking about those sexual thoughts. What's wrong with you? No, it's saying that the way you can receive the most joy is by being holy and honorable. Not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. He's saying the, the way around this whole issue is to learn to control yourself in a way that's holy and honoring and To don't act like people who don't have God as a resource. If God is your resource, this thing is no longer a thousand foot dragon. It's just about a ten foot dragon. But it's still a dragon, but it's no longer this raw thing. It's a big thing, but it's not that big. Third passage, and and the meat and potatoes of of Paul's argument. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 starting in the second half of verse 13. He, he talks in the first, in verse 12 and 13, about food for the stomach and stomach for food. And it's, it's a phrase that they use. I, I didn't really want to go into that whole bunch. It, it just means uh, that, that these two were created for each other and that whole kind of thing. But anyway, 13b says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Now, we've got to stop right there. You've got to... That is an amazing statement. I was in Arizona. Uh, I remember exactly where I was sitting. I was in Arizona at, uh, for my father in law's funeral, and I was reading through 1 Corinthians uh, uh, in a time out in the sun. And I hit this passage, and it hit me upside the head. It says, The body is not meant for sexual immorality. D- do you get that? That is huge. He's saying that the way God designed you, even though your body screams for certain sexual things, it's not made for that. But it is made for something else. It's made for the Lord. In other words, I will be most satisfied, even somehow those passions deep within me, even sexual passions will be most satisfied If I am in oneness with God, that's huge. But I tell you what, you can't have maximum sex without God. You can't have it. You can have recreational sex. You can procreate. You can do all that kind of stuff. You can't have maximum sex without it. Verse 14. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? you got to stop right there. This is amazing stuff. It says that when Christ died, I died with him. Even my sinful passions that I have for things died for, with him. They no longer have, have uh, mastery over me. And then it says when, when he rose, I rose with him. If you don't believe me, look at Ephesians uh, chapter 2. And he says, But God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. Those are past tense words. Somehow that's true of me right now as I stand here, that I'm raised with Christ and somehow I'm seated in the heavenly realms. There's power that's available to me as a result. And then he says, Don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? I am, my body, my body, this thing is a member of Jesus. I know it's la-la land, but it's awesome. It's true. So then Paul asks a question. Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? The image that comes to your mind is what Paul says here. He says, never. The Greek word is meganoito. There's a version of the Bible called the Cotton Patch Bible, which is for down south. You know how they translate it? Hell no. <laughs> Hell no is the best answer here. <laughs> I gotta get me one of them, dare. Shall I shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with the prostitute? Never. Verse 16. Do you not know? that he who unites himself with the prostitute is one with her in body. Oh, big, 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 big observation here. Wait a minute now. Uh, it means sex is more than just a fun thing. There's something more that happens than just, 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 you know, why don't I take somebody to a ball game? No one would ever say, yeah, I paid for this person. We're not one in body. Do not know that there's something, there's some kind of oneness, relational soul oneness, whatever, some kind of oneness that happens. For it is said, the two will become one flesh. He's quoting from Genesis chapter 2. We'll look at that in just a moment. So something is very, very unique about sexuality in that it's way more than just a physical thing. There's something that touches you deep. It's why when we sang that Natalie Imbruglia song where it says, I'm naked, I'm lying on the floor, and I'm shamed. Something way more going on than just an act. No one is shamed about eating popcorn, right? Well, yeah. low-carb diet, I guess you're bummed. But <laughs> it, it's just Popcorn. There's something about this area that we don't want to talk about because there's an element of shame associated with it. We'll see where that comes from in just a minute, too. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Now, one little, one little note here. The whole idea of maximum sex is that uh, uh, you, you have to have a relationship with Jesus that is amazing. In, and, and I don't mean to be really graphic here, But it's used in other places in the scripture. The sexual union between a man and a woman, it's a metaphor for the relationship God has with us. And it's that tight. Verse 18. Paul says, Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God. There's that phrase, honor God with your body. When Dharma was singing that song, I started to tear up. And uh, I don't know if this was a gift from God or just last night's Mexican food or what. I don't know, but... The image I had was someone laying shamed and naked on the floor, being involved in, in, in sexual immorality of any kind. And the image I had of God was the image of a father <clears throat> weeping over her daughter. So I think you got it in, the, in your mind that, that, that sexual immorality is, is God just a killjoy. He's not a killjoy. He loves joy. And he weeps. He weeps when you misuse it. That's why it says flee. Flee from it. Why? Because there's something that happens that ruins God's design and he weeps over it. Like a father would weep over a daughter. Okay, so that's why it's a big deal. There's a lot going on there. Now we need to ask another question. What is this whole sex thing about anyway? I mean, what was God thinking when he created it? For that, I want you to open up your Bible, or you can look at the insert, to Genesis chapter 2. We'll spend the rest of our time, except for one little fun verse I have from Proverbs, in in Genesis chapter 2. Just what was God thinking? am going to take a look at the purpose and the design of sexuality and what, what God was up to. And I want to, excuse me, first I want to quote a couple of verses from Genesis chapter 1. Genesis is where God creates everything. In Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 and 27, he says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. He's created everything else. Last thing created is, is people. He says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. doesn't say that about anything else. creates all kinds of other stuff. He doesn't say it's going to be in our image, in our likeness. Something really unique about you and me. We're created in the image and likeness of God. There's a lot of ways we're like God. There's obviously a lot of ways we're not like God. We're created to begin with, so we're different there. But God creates us and he says... Let us make them in our image and our likeness, and let them rule. Uh, just a little side note here. That means loving rulership, not trash. Okay, don't go trash the earth here. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So, verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Got it? So, look at that. Man, singular, image of God. He created him, singular and masculine. And then he splits it and he describes uh, what he means by that. He says, male and female, he created them. There's something about maleness and femaleness that completes the image of God. Think about that. Just think of what the world would be like with just guys. How many remote controls can you have? (laughs) Empty pizza boxes, beer cans all over the place, That would just be a mess. Or just with women. Actually, in my mind, that'd be a pretty nice world, but uh, I can't think, women don't have any faults and I... Now we go to Genesis 2. He's gonna, Genesis 2 is going to expand about the creation of the first humans, Adam and Eve. Genesis chapter 2, look at verse 15. It says the Lord God took the man, Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. I'm in the right place here. Yeah. Uh, to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Okay, so he put him in there to work. By the way, work, uh, chapter 3 is when the curse comes in. Work is not part of the curse. It feels like it some days on Mondays, Uh, but it's not. It's a God-designed thing. Says you're free to do whatever you want in here. Just don't eat from the one tree. You're gonna find it only lasts one chapter. They mess up in chapter three. Then the Lord God said in verse 18, It is not good for the man to be alone. Whoa, big strike. Not good? Now, if you're if you're a student of Genesis 1, you know that God. In verse 4, creates light. He said it was good. Verse 10, he creates dry ground and makes, calls it land, uh, puts the waters together, calls it seas. It was good. Verse 12, produces vegetation, plants and all that kind of thing. It was good. Uh, he, he makes, uh, he, he separates the light and the day. And on verse 18, it's good. 21, uh, great creatures in the sea and everything that's in the seas and every winged bird. And, and that was good. Verse 25, made the wild animals and it was good. And uh, 21, um, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. When you get done reading that, when you get done reading about all the things that are good, it should be very striking to you in verse 18 when he says, And now the Lord God said about Adam, not good. Now, when it says not good, he doesn't mean ugh. (laughs) He means not done. Verse... Or I will make a helper, a helper suitable for him. I'm going to give him a main squeeze. Or oh, wait, not yet. Sorry. He's going to do it though. Verse 19. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. He it, it brought all the animals to Adam. Adam names it. You look like a snake. Snake. Call you Snake. Okay, Bob Dylan's got a great song on this. Man gave name to all the animals. Anyway, <laughs> <And. clears throat> can you do that one, Tim? Tim, you wrote right that. That's in, yeah. Uh. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. God is a genius. What he does here, he says to Adam, it's not good that he's alone. And that's God's observation. So he says to Adam, we're going we're to get you a suitable helper. Here's the deal. Let's take a look at all these. Uh, long necky thing. Giraffe. Don't want to hang with a giraffe. <laughs> not working. Big gray thing. Elephant. Night, neat, neat tusks. Yeah, fun, party, whole thing. But mm -mm, not going to work. And so it goes through all of them. They're all done. When they're all done, where's Adam left? He's more alone. He's went through every possibility. And he's more alone. God loves to paint himself into a corner to make it look like there's no way out. That's it, God. There's no more. God says, you're absolutely right. So, verse 21, the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, Whoa! Check her out! It's in the white space there. That's what he would have said. Because he doesn't just say giraffe, next. He doesn't say that. He says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She And he names her. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And here it is. Most important verse in the entire Bible on marriage and sexuality. Every part of it right here. For this reason, a man... Will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. I like what the King James, how the King James says it. Uh, They they will leave. The first thing is, is you leave your family. The second thing is you cleave. I don't think cleave is even a word other than it rhymes with leave, and the King James put it in there. It means to be united. That a new family is formed. You leave your old one, you cleave to a new one, and then he says, "And the, and they will become one flesh." Now, I always ask my premarital couples this too. I say, "What does that mean?" They become one flesh. They always give me the same answer. <laughs> well. Oh yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. What does it mean? Well, sex. Yes. <laughs> it means a lot more than that, but it certainly doesn't mean less than that. I would argue that one fleshness. What was the problem? Adam was what? Alone. Alone. God solves it with with someone around who now they're going to have. Intimacy in every area of their life, including physically. But in every area of their life, they become one. Emotionally, mentally, the, 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 their thoughts, their, their habits, who squeezes from where on the toothpaste tube, everything, it's just a topic of conversation to be one on. Everything. Including physically. And they will become one flesh and then, and then a lot of people claim this is their favorite verse in the entire Bible. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. The man and wife were both naked. I would argue, not just physically, that's relatively simple. In everything, Adam and Eve were naked, and they felt no shame. That's what maximum sex is. It's not just. A romp in the sheets It is in every area, there's oneness. In every area you're experiencing leaving and cleaving and oneness, and it's highlighted by physical union. It, do not sell for anything less. Huh? Don't sell for anything less. In my relationship with Carol, you, you don't want to settle for anything less, if you're in a relationship with your spouse or your spouse to be, don't settle for anything less. God has designed it to be a beautiful, intimate thing. He's also designed it to be in the embracedness of a permanent, the leaving and cleaving happen first. We call that a wedding. The leaving and cleaving, and they come together. God has desired that there would be no shame. Natalie Imbruglia says, lying naked and feeling shame. A lot of you, as we talk about uh, our our issues and sexually, we have a lot of shame. God's design is that there would be no shame. Okay, we've looked at at some passages. I want to make some summary observations here as we close. We have two more weeks on this too, so if all your questions weren't answered, uh, go on the internet. Uh, No, no, I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean, I, man, that come out wrong. I, 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 uh, there are some very healthy resources on the internet. Uh, there are some really not healthy resources on the internet. Uh, gosh, that didn't, I was doing the healthy ones this week, and yeah. And so, can you get that out of the tape? Uh, uh, summary, first one. Sexuality is a gift from God, not something bad. I can't tell you how many couples I counsel who their view of sexuality is it's dirty or it's wrong. They were brought up that way. They were brought up not to think about sex as a healthy thing. If you come from that background, you will never understand God's design. God made this thing. God made it to be great. I have a couple things I'd like to point out about this. Uh, first of all, it's a gift from God. It's not dirty in itself. It's a beautiful thing given by God for our pleasure. You can go to the, I think it's an A and B, isn't it? Go to the next one. No, 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 I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, that's right. Oh, this is great. <laughs> Proverbs 5, 18. Actually, this, this whole section of Proverbs is great. Listen to this. Listen. To, now, this is Eugene Peterson's translation, but any translation will work too, but this is beautiful. From the message. He says, Bless your fresh flowing fountain. Enjoy the wife you married as a young man. Lovely as an angel. Beautiful as a rose. Don't ever quit taking delight in her body. Huh? Sex is a beautiful thing. Never take her love for granted. It's a gift from God. It's not something bad. There's a book in the Bible called Song of Solomon. I'll just shoot, some people try to work their way around this book of Song of Solomon and say, oh, it's really about, you know, the relationship between God and, no, 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 no. This is an erotic book. They would not let young Jewish boys read this until they were 30 years old. It is. But it's meant to be that way. You know what? Go home and read it. It's in the Bible. They talk about it being a gift from God, and it is. Second thing, we were created by God for loving relationships. You were created. It is not good that, that there's one person in the world. And we'll talk about singleness and God's design, sex in the single. How does that work? We'll talk about that in the weeks to come. But just right now, know that you are designed for a relationship. You are designed for a relationship. And the most important, first and foremost... Not to be filled up in any other way is your relationship with Jesus Christ. Sex is a wonderful thing that people have tried over and over and over to allow it to fill them. And it's never been made to do that. And people keep trying. It is a metaphor of Christ's relationship with the church. You're never to use it as a substitute for your relationship with Jesus. Second thing under there is, if God leads you into marriage, then sex is this beautiful metaphor of that intimate relationship. But it's so much higher than than the other one. I, I remember when a single buddy of mine asked uh, me after a year or so of marriage, he's, he said, well, I don't, don't want to be crass or anything, but tell me about sex. And I said to him, and I, and, I, and, I, and I don't mean this in any, but I just, it's not a big deal. Now, that, does, I don't... <laughs> in other words, don't worship it. Don't worship it. Worship God. Third thing God created sex to be in the confines of a lifetime permanent relationship where there's leaving, cleaving, and oneness happening in every area it is. is isn't the rest of it is the ice cream sundae and the sexuality is the uh, uh, cherry on top God is a genius it's my phrase of the year I love to say that he knows what he's doing he created this thing designed us to fully enjoy it but it's supposed to be an expression of total nakedness in every area of your life. That's why, that's why brokenness, broken relationships are so incredibly painful. Because what God has designed you for, you're feeling the pain of that. And every one of us in this room in some way, shape, or form have, have felt that brokenness of, of either relationships or, 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 or even, even in our own relationships with our spouses or whatever, there's brokenness there. And it hurts because it wasn't designed for that. It's why sex is reserved for marriage because it's that intimate. It's that oneness where it's supposed to be completely safe, to be completely naked. Fourth thing God wants you to experience sex without shame. God wants you to experience sex without shame. The whole end point of sex is that it ended aloneness. Unfortunately, there's all kinds of things that we do, masturbation and others, that actually make us feel more alone. It's a counterfeit. It's a dupe. You're being duped. It's about oneness and intimacy, and in in essence, we flip it around. We all struggle with that. Fantasy life, whatever. God wants you to experience... Sex without shame. Therefore, he commands you. It's a command. As a loving father looking at his daughter would say, abstain from sexual immorality. Why? Because I'm trying to punish you? No, because I deeply love you. And the last thing, there's something about sexual immorality that unlike any other thing causes unique relational pain when it's misused. This is just to highlight those, the, the points we made before. God is not a killjoy. His command is for our ultimate joy, for his glory and for my joy. Waiting makes it sweeter. Now let me ask you the question again. Why avoid sexual immorality? Because it will lead you to maximum joy. That's God's, that's God's plan. That's why. Next couple weeks, we're going to look at how our culture twists that. Last week, we're going to look at how in the world, as people who are in a very sexually promiscuous land, how in the world can we have healing? How can we have victory over these things? Let's pray together. God, the enemy of our souls, loves this area more than any other. He, he loves to do damage in our psyche. He knows it because it's a great way to make people feel rotten and ashamed. And when we get ashamed, we withdraw from other people and we're not honest with them. We don't come to God and ask for forgiveness. We don't go to others and seek their forgiveness. We just withdraw and pretend it never happened. So right now in this room, in the name of Jesus Christ and on his authority, I break that bond over us. We will be open about this. We will come to one another and confess. We will come to you, Jesus, and, and, and lay it at your feet and say, Lord, I need to learn how to control my body so that I can in holiness and honor be right with you. And God, if there's any images that the enemy of our souls is trying to put in our minds about a father with a hammer in his, in his hand wanting to beat us on the head because of this, Lord, would we have more the father who finds his daughter after years and years of searching for her. She's all drugged up. She's been sold into prostitution and she's laying naked on the floor. And the father comes up to her and kneels at her and weeps over her. God, that is your heart towards us, and I pray that that would hit us that way. That we would not run from you, we would run to you. Or in this room, we, we need a lot of help in this area. I need help in this area. Would you come by your spirit? Would you cleanse? Would you forgive? Even right now, as I know, there are people in this room seeking out to you to cleanse them and to heal them and to forgive them. Lord on that cross you died for ugly sins and in our minds this is some of the ugliest stuff so right now we want to claim that the cross was effective for this too we lay it at the foot of the cross Or we sing that hymn that says my sin not in part but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more we lay this at your feet Jesus God, would you use this to drive us into even a deeper relationship with you? The body was not made for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. We were designed to run on you, God. Would you do that in our lives? Would you make us be so hungry for you that nothing else would satisfy us? Come and be amongst us, God. This, these next weeks as we study this topic, release us from things that feel like prison to us. Open the doors, Jesus, like only you can. Pray in Jesus' name.